For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, the title of the sermon, The Golden Chain. Uh, This is part 5 as we're considering each of these theological terms that we find in verses 29 and 30. Uh, for the sake of understanding each of these terms so that they can inform our minds as we meditate on the Lord, meditate on what he's done for us, meditate on the scriptures, and as we sing, as we worship, it's important that we know these things. Uh, there are a lot of people today. There's, there's a movement of anti-intellectualism in the church uh, where people um, uh, want to divorce worship from doctrine or love from doctrine. Those things aren't to be divorced. They are married together. Uh, and one informs the other. And so we need to take time and understand what it is that God has revealed to us in his word. Amen? And so we've been doing that in Romans chapter 8. We'll continue to do that. Uh, But this morning, the last sermon in this text, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. As you find that text, please stand with the Bible in your hand. We'll read our text, we'll pray, and then we'll dig into what God's word has in store for us this morning. This is Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. How sweet are his words to those who trust in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. As you're seated, let's pray now and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for the ultimate author of Scripture. Uh, You yourself are the Spirit of God. And we thank you, Lord, for this uh, good instruction. Help us, Lord, to understand the things here spoken of by Paul. Open our understanding, enlighten our minds, and help us to, again, receive with meekness the word, the implanted word, able to save our souls. Thank you, Lord, for working through this means to work in us, to will and to do according to your good pleasure. I pray that you would do that now. If there's anyone here, Lord, unconverted, uh, work in them as well to effectually call them to yourself for your own glory. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things in his name. Amen. The title of our sermon, The Golden Chain, Part 5, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So we are back this morning, Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where for the last several weeks now, we've been considering this text, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, a text referred to as the golden chain. The subject of our text, by way of review, has been the manifold work of God in the salvation of undeserving sinners. A salvation that begins with the deliberation of God's own infinite mind in eternity past. A salvation that is secured through the person and work of God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. A salvation that is applied in the experience of the sinner in time by the Spirit. And a salvation that terminates upon the glorification of those he has determined to save to the everlasting praise of his grace in eternity future. According to his decreed purpose and according to God's 
sovereign governing providence, God with omnipotence then works in his appointed and accepted time to call those to himself by his own will, calling them out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, enlightening their minds to savingly understand the gospel, removing their hearts of stones, uh, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their natures, renewing their wills, such that they turn to Christ in repentance and faith most freely, coming of their own volition, made willing to come freely by his grace. Upon that faith, upon that repentant faith, which itself is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast, Upon that faith, God freely justifies them. He justifies them pardoning the debt of their sin through the substitutionary atoning work of his own son and by accounting and by accepting their persons as righteous, having freely put to their account as a gift of his grace both the active and the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ in satisfaction of the law's demands. They are the called according to his purpose. Those who love God as the fruit of a new heart and with the intention of bringing to pass all that God has purposed, we know, we know that God is working all things together for their good. And why is that? To what end? To what purpose? Because God the Father has determined to glorify his Son. And he is determined to glorify the Son by conforming them into his own image. Their thoughts, desires, affections, character, emotions, wills, actions, even their very bodies. So that Jesus Christ might be the prototakos, the firstborn, the ruler and head among those he is not ashamed to call his brethren. That path, the path from divine deliberation in eternity past to divine accomplishment in eternity future, that path is represented in our text by five sovereign works of God known as the golden chain. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Now having considered those works of God in eternity, namely foreknowledge and predestination, and then having considered those works of God in time, namely calling and justification, we now turn our attention this morning to the conclusion of our study in this text and our future glorification. Now first, as we see in our text, those who are the subjects of this sovereign work of God are those whom he has foreloved from eternity. There's a connection from beginning to end in the text. Those who are the subjects of God's gracious working in glorification are those he foreloved before the foundation of the world. Their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world, before anything, including you, was created. That determined and finite group consists of all those, then, that he predestined or foreordained or decreed to be conformed into the image of his son. He decreed that group to be made after, to be renewed after the image of his own son. This is the group that in time he then calls to himself. This is the group that in time he then justifies to the praise of his grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his justice. And verse 30, those whom he justifies these then he also glorifies. And what we see in the testimony of the scriptures, 
what we see plainly, clearly in the Bible is an elect people of God, chosen freely by God in eternity, saved in time, and most certainly glorified in the future. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus said, and I will raise them up at the last day. Second, first, those who are the subjects of this sovereign work are that group that he has foreloved in eternity. Second, in the order given to us by Paul in verse 30, glorification follows justification. Right? It represents, in following justification, at the end of Paul's list here, glorification represents the completion of the process of our salvation. Glorification, then, is future for the believer. It's future for the believer. And we see that word, though, in verse 30, translated in the past tense, don't we? And these he also glorified, past tense. That term in the Greek is referred to, for you guys studying the language, as a proleptic aorist. He's speaking proleptically, speaking of the past tense. Putting this word in the past tense communicates, if you will, the certainty of its accomplishment. It absolutely will come to pass. Those whom he has justified, these he will most certainly glorify. The third, as we see in our text, glorification is the sovereign work of God alone. In other words, in other words, glorification is yet another aspect of our salvation. If you remember, it's talking about the ordo salutis or the order of salvation and the manifold, not the monolithic singular work of God to save the sinner, but the manifold, the multivaried, manifold work of God, work of his grace in saving a sinner. Glorification is yet another example, another aspect of that order of salvation that is all of grace. It is a work that we ourselves do not contribute to. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. You are not in there. Amen? So our salvation, again, it's important to remember, our our salvation from start to finish, from foreknowledge to glorification, is entirely the work of God's grace. Now that raises the question, and it's a very good question. Don't we contribute anything to that? We'll see that question essentially in Romans chapter 9 relatively soon. I was about to say very soon. Not going to be very soon. Relatively soon. Uh, Do we contribute anything, anything to our salvation? What about our sanctification? We labor, we strive, we work in sanctification. What about all those texts that command us to strive? The texts that command us to work. Don't we contribute anything? How does our work fit together with what the Bible says about God's work? Now, Paul in our text in Romans chapter 8 has been emphasizing God's sovereignty in salvation. But there's something else at play here too, and it's called man's responsibility. And God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are married together. They're not to be divorced. They're married together. But how is it that man's responsibility then fits in with what Paul is saying here. If salvation is monergistic, it means the work of one alone, then why are we commanded to pursue sanctification in particular as though it were synergistic or a cooperating work of more than one? Right? Why is it that it is all of grace and nothing to do with us if we are called to work and to strive. Think with me for a moment about that. I want you to think through this subject with me. This will be, I pray, helpful. In John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, 
That's a terrific book. If you haven't read it, I commend it uh, to you uh, three times this year. (laughs) In Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is brought into a very large parlor, very large room, and the room is full of dust. Remember that account from the book? A man in the room, standing by, a man in the room is called to sweep. It's a picture of our sanctification. He's going to clean out the room, right? So the man sweeps and he sweeps and he sweeps and he sweeps and he works at sweeping, sweeping and sweeping. And for all his effort, the more that he sweeps, he merely stirs up the dust, creates a cloud of dust in the room that is so thick it it chokes them out, okay? In other words, all his sweeping is a fruitless and hopeless effort. That's the point. So a girl standing by sprinkles water on the floor. After having sprinkled the water, the man is able to sweep. Floor becomes clean from the dust. The man cleans up the dust, okay? Christian understands the point. He's watching this take place. He understands, Christian, the main character, he understands the point. Human effort is futile. Human effort is fruitless apart from the saving, the gracious saving work of God. Apart from him, we can do Nothing, nothing but stir up the dust, okay? It is God who sanctifies, God who conforms us into the image of his son. And he does so, he does so through the means or through the instrumentality of our faith-filled effort. He does so through the means of our sweeping. Now, sanctification, for example, one of the many works of God, sanctification is both definitive and progressive, Okay? In definitive sanctification, God, by a sovereign work of his grace alone, God sets us apart to himself. We are definitively, positionally, if you will, set apart to God for his purposes. He delivers us, as it were, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. He conveys us out of the kingdom of darkness into another realm. Okay, Then, in progressive sanctification, God by the sovereign working of his grace. So now not a sovereign work of his grace, but a sovereign working of his grace. God then empowers and enables the believer then to sweep. And he enables and empowers the the believer to sweep with effect. He enables him, empowers him to fruitfully sweep. So then what do we do? What's our response to that? We sweep. We sweep, okay? Okay. And we are to sweep with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter two. Why are we to sweep with fear and trembling? Because it's almighty God who is at work in us to produce a clean room through the means of our sweeping. Colossians chapter one, verse 29. Paul says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, The way to understand this relationship, the way to understand the relationship between his work and my work is to understand the relationship between ends and means. God alone, think with me now, God alone sovereignly decrees the ends. But God alone also sovereignly decrees the means by which those ends are accomplished. Okay? Jonathan Edwards, in this, uses the illustration of our prayer as an example. Listen to Edwards. God decrees the rain in drought because God decrees the earnest prayers of his people. You see the connection? 
One is the ends, one is the means, right? God decrees the means, rain in drought, because he has declared or decreed to the ends the prayers of his people. Do you see? The earnest prayers of his people. Or thus, he decrees the prayers of his people because he has decreed the rain. One is the ends, one is the means. In other words, Edward says, when God decrees to give the blessing of rain, he decrees the prayers of his people to bring about the rain. Thereby, there is a harmony between these two decrees. Who is the one who produces the rain? God and God alone, right? We do not produce the rain by our prayers. Our prayers are the means by which God produces the rain. Do you see? God produces the rain through the means that he has appointed. The production of rain is monergistic. The production of rain is not synergistic. Does that make sense? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have we made me like this? (laughs) That's not how it works. (laughs) The potter is the one with power over the clay. The shovel cannot look at the hole and claim synergism. Someone fashioned the shovel. Someone uses the shovel. The shovel does not have a will. We have a will. But you see the point, right? You see the connection. It is likewise so with the entirety of our salvation start to finish. In the same way, the entirety of our salvation start to finish. God has not only decreed to the end our glorification and our conformity into Christ's image, God has also decreed and sees to all the means by which he saves us. The instrumentality of faith by which he justifies us. The instrumentality of faith through which he conforms us into the image of his son such that our salvation, including our sanctification, is and entirely is a work of God's grace alone. A work, and this is the way to think about it, it's a work which we are blessed to experience through a faith-filled participation such that our salvation is by grace through faith. Even our sanctification is entirely by grace, meaning it comes entirely from God, through the means of or the instrumentality of faith. Hope that helps. Now think about the application of that principle then. As we think about God's sovereignty over our salvation, and then God not only ordaining the ends, but ordaining the means, ordaining our faith, ordaining our prayer, ordaining our Bible study, ordaining our labor, ordaining our striving, ordaining our effort, ordaining our sweeping, right? God ordaining the means as well as the ends. Think about an application then of that principle. God is the one who decrees your effort. If you strive and if you labor and if you work, do you really imagine that on the day of judgment, you'll be able to stand before the bar of God's justice and say, God, look at everything I did. Look at how hard I worked at my sanctification. Is that going to go over? No, like a lead balloon. (laughs) Not going to go. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. We can't stand before God and claim any merit of our own, lest anyone should boast. God is the one who decrees your effort and by his spirit brings it about. God is the one who enables. God is the one who empowers. Are you sweeping? It's because God has empowered you and enabled you to sweep. Are you not sweeping? That's something to consider, right? And in the words of Edwards, if he has decreed your effort, 
Then, as Edward said, he often has decreed for you the kingdom. In other words, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of a genuine faith? The fruit of a genuine faith is our labor, is our effort, is our obedience, is our love, is our joy, is our hope. It's our working, it's our striving. It's our obedience. What is the fruit of a genuine faith? All of those things that that God-gifted faith produces. It will absolutely produce the fruit that God has determined for it to produce. Why? Ultimately, because it doesn't depend upon you. It's the faith that is the gift of God, and it will produce those effects, right? And in in the words of Edwards, if God has decreed your effort, and if you find yourself adding to your faith virtue, and adding to your virtue knowledge, and adding to your knowledge love, and so on, then it's an indication that your faith is genuine, right? That's where we, the Bible instructs us to look for assurance of our salvation. Therefore, what's the application of that principle for you? Strive. Strive, brother. Make, as Peter would say, make your call and election sure. Labor. Pursue the means of grace. Pursue obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue a knowledge of his word. Pursue him. Put forth the effort. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. I hope that helps. That's how God's work and our work fits together. One is the means that God has decreed. One is the ends which God has decreed. God accomplishes both. Okay. What is glorification then? What is glorification? As with the entirety of our salvation, it is the sovereign work of God. And it is the work of God for the benefit of those who he, whom he has foreloved, predestined, called, and justified. But how do we define the term? The doctrine of our glorification is derived in part from the verb used in our text. The verb is doxadzo, and it refers to glorifying someone. It refers to glorifying, esteeming them, praising them, honoring them, extolling them, right? Ascribing value or worth to them is to glorify them. Now we're very used to or accustomed to using that word with respect to the praise that we offer to God, right? That, that we understand that. We want to glorify God. So glorify him. What do you do when you glorify him? You ascribe greatness to him. You ascribe goodness to him. You extol the name of God for his love, for his work on behalf of men, for the excellence of his person, for all of his wondrous works, for all of his wondrous deeds, for who he is. You extol, you magnify the name of God. You glorify him. We're very accustomed to using that word with respect to God, but I would submit to you, and rightly so, we're a little uncomfortable when it comes to thinking of or speaking about glorifying us or glorifying undeserving sinners. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. The Gentiles, although they knew God through general revelation, they did not glorify him as God. They did not esteem him as God. They did not honor him as God, uh, nor were they thankful. They did not praise him as God. They did not extol him as God. They did not hallow him as God. And so the Gentiles cursed under the law, so to speak. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And we're looking at the use of that word, that verb, glorify. In Romans chapter 15... We see the word used in that way. Verse 5. Verse 5. Now may the God of patience, may the God of comfort, grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and with one mouth 
glorify, esteem, praise, extol, honor, that you may glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Now I say this, that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that they might praise him, that the Gentiles might thank him and magnify his name for his mercy. In that use of the word glorify, God alone is worthy of glory. Amen? We couldn't conceive of glorifying undeserving sinners in that way. Right? God alone is worthy of that glory. However, the verb doxadzo, the, word to, the verb to glorify, is also used in reference to raising someone to a position or to a status of honor. Raising someone to high status. And this verb is actually used in this way of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The verb doxadzo used in reference to elevating someone to a high status or position. Paul, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, Paul is speaking here of the status of Jesus Christ as our high priest. The objection of many Jews in the first century to the priesthood of Jesus Christ was that Jesus wasn't a Levite. Jesus Christ wasn't a descendant of Aaron. So how could Jesus Christ claim to be great high priest. How could we say that Jesus Christ is our great high priest? Verse one. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Verse three. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. That's what our great high priest, our high priest is to do. And verse 4, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. In, order, in other words... Jesus Christ did not elevate himself to that position. He did not claim that status for himself. God was the one who esteemed him worthy. God was the one who appointed him high priest. God is the one who elevated him. God is the one who glorified him. Do you see? God glorified our Lord Jesus Christ in elevating him to the position of our high priest. And the verse says it, verse 5. Rather, it was he, it was God who said to him, you are my son today. And speaking of the resurrection, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according, not to the order of Aaron, not to the order of Levites, but you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God glorified Jesus Christ as our great high priest and he was appointed to that lofty or ele elevated position by God himself. Verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected. I thought Jesus Christ was perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. Jesus Christ is sinless. But Jesus Christ proves or validates his perfections. 
he proves or validates his perfect obedience through what? Through perfect obedience. He had to obey to the end, even to the point of death, the death of the cross, okay? So having been perfected then, coming to the end of his life, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, he, verse 9, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 10, called by God, glorified by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's in this sense of the word that believers are to be glorified together with him. Brothers and sisters, we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. And in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, his death to sin has become our death to sin. His penalty-paying sacrifice applies to us. The wrath of God toward us has been propitiated or extinguished by his work on the cross. His perfect obedience, both active and passive, put to our account by the free grace of God, we are declared righteous, united to Jesus Christ, and now righteous in him. We are treated as sons sons, adopted sons in God's household. And when Jesus Christ is glorified, we, united to him, are glorified together with him. Do you see? Paul said this essentially in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Romans 8, verse 17. If children, then heirs. If we're sons in the household of God, if we're children of God, then we inherit We are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Why are we joint heirs with Christ? Because we are sons. We are elevated. We are elevated to the status of sons of God in the kingdom. If indeed we suffer with him. In other words, if we persevere, if our faith endures, if it bears the fruit that God has intended for saving faith, genuine faith to produce, if it perseveres to the end, then we may also, verse 17, be glorified together. We are glorified together with our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't glorify ourselves. We don't claim that glory for ourselves. It is God glorifying us in glorification. It is God elevating our status, so to speak, to be like his son. And he treats us accordingly. He treats us as he treats his own son. Our glorification then consists of a privileged position. Our glorification then consists of a blessed status that is bestowed on us. It's a blessed status bestowed on us by God in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been united to Jesus Christ through faith, having been adopted as sons, and thus made joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, having been glorified together with him, verse 17, all of that involves sharing with him then in the royal honor in the royal dignity, in the royal esteem that he has secured through his work. Do you see? It means sharing together with him all of the things that he is entitled to. It's a glorious privilege. What has been bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ has been bestowed upon us in him. And we, with him, inherit all things. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 in the Lord's high priestly prayer The Lord prays for this very thing to come about. And do you think that the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ are answered by God? Amen. Not one of them turned away or rebuked. Not one of them. The Lord answers the Lord's prayers. John chapter 17, verse 20. The Lord says, I do not pray for these alone. Speaking of the the disciples, okay? I do not pray for these disciples alone, 
but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. If you put your faith in Christ, that's you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, on the evening before he was crucified, prayed for you. And he prays for you on his way to the garden, these words, so that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And, verse 22, the glory which you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Glory! Amen? It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Listen, no matter what you may go through in this life, no matter what trial you may face, no matter what tribulation you endure, no matter what difficulty assails you, no matter what your anguish of heart may be, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with that glory, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Awesome, right? Think on that for a while. Let that sink into your heart. Meditate on that for a while. But wait, there's more. <laughs> God, in union with Jesus Christ, elevates us to, to this high status, this high position as sons in his own household, such that as Jesus Christ is regarded, as Jesus Christ is treated, we are regarded. We are regarded as he is regarded. We're treated accordingly as he is treated. We are in union with him, do you see? But not only that, Glorification doesn't merely or only involve a change of our status or involve a change of our position. It involves a change of our person. Praise God. Uh, it involves our very conformity with his perfect person. Look at our text. Romans chapter 8. If we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, verse 29, and if that conformity terminates upon our glorification, verse 30, then our glorification, which is the end of the process, involves our perfect conformity to his perfect person. Do you see? It's a little bit of algebra for you, right? If A plus B equals C, then you know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> um, if we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, verse 29, and if that conformity terminates upon our glorification, verse 30, then our glorification involves our conformity into the image of his son. Dr. Murray, glorification is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed into the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer, when even the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. Praise God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now at this present time we are children of God. Now we presently are the children of God. But it has not yet been revealed to us what we shall be, right? It has not been revealed to us what we shall be when we are glorified. But we know this, John says, that when he, Christ, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
we will be made perfect in conformity with his perfect person. Awesome. That transformation of believers into Christ's likeness at glorification, that transformation takes place in two primary ways. First, we will be made like Christ bodily. I'm excited about that. Like, <laughs> we're going to be made like Christ bodily. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. The redemption of our body, we're going to get a body like his. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verse 5. If we have become united together with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Look there at verse 49. In verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we're going to talk about those trumpets tonight in Revelation chapter 8. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Why? Because this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We'll get bodies by which we will live forever. Verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. At that time, right, death is swallowed up in victory. There will be no more death, no more sickness, no more pain. Death, where's your sting? Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. If you with Paul, from the anguish of your heart, cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Then this should charge you up. (laughs) I thank God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He will. Our confession, chapter 31, article 1. The bodies of men after death return to dust. And see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting then for the full redemption of their bodies. We are all the redemption of our bodies, our glorification all takes place together at the same time. We're all going to be glorified together, right? That's, that's a neat thought too. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, heaven and hell, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So then, Romans chapter 8 verse 11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if his spirit dwells in you, 
then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We're going to get a glorified body. (laughs) The second, second, we're going to be made like Christ spiritually. Spiritually. Made like Christ in holiness. Made like Christ in righteousness. Fully separated, not only from the penalty of our sin, not only from the power of sin, but forever free from the presence of sin. Praise God. All to the praise of his grace. Amen? Our glorification will involve a far greater position than Adam ever enjoyed. Think with me. Adam was created passe non picare. We've used these terms before. I want to give you a little repetition here so maybe this will sink in for you. This is something good to think about. Adam was created passe non picare, able not to sin. Passe non picare, able not to sin. Adam fell, and because of Adam's fall, all mankind became non passe, non picare, not able not to sin. They sin all the time. They're in bondage to sin and death, dead in trespasses and sins. When the Lord saves us, when the Lord makes us a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are restored, as it were, to a state of passe non picare, able not to sin. But we often do sin, don't we? And that's because we still have this flesh to contend with. Although we delight in the law of God with our, according to our inward man, that's Romans 7, we find another principle at work in our members. That principle of remaining sin, remaining corruption, and that principle of remaining sin wages war against the law of our mind, wages war in our flesh, and we sin against God. In glorification, however, brothers and sisters, we are, by the grace of God, non passe picare, not able to sin. You thought to yourself, when I get to heaven, what's to keep us from sinning, having a sinful thought? letting a sinful word slip and the Lord kicking us out of heaven because he cannot, he's of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. No, we are made in glorification, not able to sin. We cannot sin. We do not sin. We will not sin. Sin forever will be vanquished from the kingdom. (laughs) Delivered from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's in that state then, brothers and sisters, that we enjoy a communion with God. We enjoy a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ that Adam never enjoyed. It's in that state that forever, forever, we will have this communion that defies imagination. Think with me. Every faculty of your being, every faculty polluted and corrupted by sin, every faculty, your mind, your thoughts, your imaginations, your desires, your affections, your emotions, everything that you say, everything that you do, Everything corrupted, tainted, polluted by sin, twisted by sin. Your understanding darkened. You can't figure things out. Half the time you don't know your right hand from your left. You're walking around like a blind man. Your understanding darkened, corrupted, twisted by sin. Your will in bondage to sin. The very thing that I want to do, that's the thing I don't do. And the very thing that I don't want to do, that's the thing I find myself doing. Right? Romans 7. Your affections twisted to love sin rather than righteousness. And though God has made of us a new creation, though the body of our sin has been done away with at the cross, sin, that sin, and the devastating effects of the fall yet remain with us as a principle in our flesh. 
such that believers cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am. With our glorification and the completion of that good work which God began in us comes the full and complete and perfect eradication of all those effects. All of those effects comes the full and complete eradication of that unhappy estate. Glorified minds that never entertain a sinful thought. Glorified minds with a perfectly enlightened understanding. <laughs> Glorified affections whereby we love him. You know, someone may say, I love God with all my heart. You don't know the half of it. We don't know a fraction of it. We're, we're twisted by sin. To be in heaven with him, glorified with a glorified heart that loves him with all the heart, all the mind, all the strength, all the time. Right? Glory. Glorified affections whereby we delight in everything that there is to do with him. Glorified wills whereby we serve him and obey him in every way with all of our strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Now, in this life, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and again, that's an understatement, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And as grieved as Paul was by his present state of corruption, O wretched man that I am, his hope and faith were in Christ. His hope and faith were in Jesus Christ to finish the work. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's talking about the complete and radical transformation of the whole person, body and soul. Do you see? To be conformed into the perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified, magnified as the prototokos, the ruler and head of a redeemed humanity who are new, newly created after the image of him worshiping and praising God for all eternity. It's that kind of worship that God is worthy of, do you see? It's that kind of worship that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of. So when Paul speaks of our glorification in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he speaks of that great position to which we have been elevated in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He it's from the, the guttermost to the uttermost. He speaks of the radical and complete transformation of our entire person, body and soul, in complete conformity with the perfect person of his own son. And we are treated accordingly. The captain of our salvation then brings with him many sons to glory. And what began in the foreknowledge of God in eternity before anything that we see and know existed, before you or I existed, before any of us had done anything good or evil, in the eternal deliberations of God's own infinite mind, God in matchless grace, matchless grace, determined to show a love for his son by setting a distinguishing love upon a particular group of people that he then decreed to be conformed into the image of his own dear son that in eternity, that might be to the praise of his grace. In time, he calls them effectually to himself. He takes out their heart of stone. He gives them a heart of flesh. He indwells them with his spirit and causes them to walk in his statutes and to keep his judgments and to do them. 
He preserves them and he sanctifies them and he washes them with water by the word and he causes them to endure to the end when his Lord Jesus Christ returns, at which time with him they are raised gloriously from the dead and united to Jesus Christ in eternity, conformed with his perfect person, offering praise and worship to God from pure hearts, from grateful hearts, from loving hearts, with pure affections. And what began with the foreknowledge of God in eternity is brought to its decreed end, to the everlasting praise of the glory of his grace. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise your name. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, the goodness that you have shown to us, and the intent or the purpose that you have of demonstrating to us the exceeding riches of your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus into the ages, demonstrating to us how much you love us and how much you love the Son by pouring your grace out upon us even into the ages. Lord, um, we rejoice in you. We take our encouragement from you. We have our hope fixed in you. The Lord Jesus Christ is our life, is our righteousness, and we look forward to the day when together with him we'll be raised to glory. May it be for your glory. May it be for your praise as we see you face to face, as we communion with you, communion with you in eternity, uh, serving you as your people. We love you. We thank you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to keep these thoughts, this text, these truths in our hearts and in our minds as we seek to live for you on this side of eternity and preserve us, Lord, until you're coming. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.